You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something. This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Thanks to people like Donna Summer and Robin Gibb, disco is more than just the music of white polyester suits and the hustle. I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Today, we give disco its due. And we'll review the much-buzzed new albums by Beach House and outcast protege Killer Mike. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and right now, in the movie screen in your head, I am sure you're picturing John Travolta strutting down the street. That, of course, is Staying Alive from the now 35-year-old classic Saturday Night Fever, a song written and performed by the Bee Gees. Bee Gees member Robin Gibb died on May 20th at age 62 after a long battle with cancer. This announcement came just days after we learned about the death of another disco pioneer, Donna Summer. Greg, I think this gives us a great opportunity to look back at our disco genre dissection to talk about why this most maligned of musical genres really deserves a lot more respect. But first, we have to talk about the passing of these two artists. into a devoutly Christian family in the Dorchester neighborhood of Boston, LaDonna Adrian Gaines, known to the world as Donna Summer, was singing Greg basically from the time she left the cradle. And what a great voice that was. Now, Donna Summer unequivocally was the queen of disco. Five Grammy Awards, 
four consecutive number one singles on the Billboard album chart within one year and three consecutive double concept albums reaching number one on the Billboard charts. Those are the numbers. For millions and millions of fans, she epitomized disco. And many people, sadly, consigned her to the resale shops after disco ended, along with all of those leisure suits. Later in the show, we'll talk specifically about her contributions to electronic dance music. She made her way from the U.S., over to Europe in the early 70s, singing with a touring production of the hippie musical Hair. There she met the Italian producer Giorgio Moroder and the uh, songwriter Peter Balat. And with two singles, Love to Love You Baby and I Feel Love, really the template was laid for all electronic dance music continuing up to today. But there are other elements of her legacy as well. I want to make the case, Greg, listen to what I said earlier, three consecutive double albums What a grand artistic ambition that is. We usually think of progressive rock or Pete Townsend as being the crafters of double albums. Donna Summer was interested in telling big stories with the album format, something people don't remember as being part of disco. Also, I think that she really inhabited characters that musical theater training never left her, whether she was playing a working girl, you know, I work hard for the money, or a bad girl, or any of a number of other characters. She inhabited those roles with her vocals, her style, her entire persona. I think it is impossible to imagine Madonna or Lady Gaga or everybody else in between without Donna Summer having paved that ground. Early on, before she even went to Europe, she was in a psychedelic rock band called Crow. Later, she said she really loved country music. She recorded some Christian music. We always think of funk and R&B as being the roots of disco, but she said, I love all music, and she could apply that wonderful voice pretty much to every style. She made albums throughout the 80s, throughout the 90s, and as recently as 2008, although they never sold what she had done earlier. But I think those two big contributions to electronic music and to the idea of a sort of theatricality, a female flamboyant front woman who was, as she told Ebony Magazine, more than just sex, 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 I think those are the legacies that live on. I think most artists from that era, Jim, don't get enough credit as artists. And uh, you made the case eloquently for Donna Summer. I think the same is true for Robin Gibb, who died at age 62 a few days ago. He also is heavily associated with his group, the Bee Gees, with the disco era. The Bee Gees sold 200 million records. Not all of them were copies of Saturday Night Fever, which was the record they are most associated with. They are the group that defined the disco era for many people who discovered disco in the late 70s through that John Travolta movie. But they were much more than that. As I said, 200 million records sold a hit in five different decades. Not many groups can say they did that. I think like Donna Summer, the Bee Gees brought an element of art and songwriting chops to disco that maybe people don't give them enough credit for bringing. Robin Gibb was one of two main lead vocalists in the Bee Gees, along with his brother Barry. Barry was the guy with the high falsetto parts. Robin had more of the vibrato tone in his voice, and you could tell them apart on the records. Robin would sing a lot of the ballad-type material. Barry was singing some of the up-tempo disco tracks. 
But they had different phases in this group. The disco era was a big one. When you mentioned the word disco to the Bee Gees, they kind of looked at you and said, you know, we really thought of it more as blue-eyed soul. We were coming out of a a soul and R&B tradition, emulating these artists from America that we loved from the 60s and early 70s and doing our own take on it. So when they started hooking up with Arif Mardin in the 70s to make these soul records, they dovetailed nicely with this new sound called disco. But it wasn't their intention to be disco artists because they always viewed themselves more as songwriters. And the songwriting chops were definitely part of those classic records they made in the 70s. But let's look at their other periods as well. They continued to score hits in the 80s and 90s and even the 2000s. But I think the period that is most overlooked about the Bee Gees is their beginnings in the late 60s as part of that British invasion movement out of the U.K., Now, some people even thought those early Bee Gees singles were the Beatles in hiding. This was another version of the Beatles, and they were putting out additional songs through this cover band called the Bee Gees, when in fact, it was a separate group. Those early Bee Gees albums were locked in different types of art forms, orchestral pop and rock. They were elements of psychedelia in there, and those great songwriting chops as well. I want to play a track from one of those early Bee Gees albums called Every Christian Lionhearted Man Will Show You. I love that song, Greg. It's a beauty, and it illustrates all the different styles of music that they were involved in, trying to compress it all down into a three- or four-minute track. This is the Bee Gees on Sound Opinions. That is the Bee Gees' 1967 hit, Every Christian Lionhearted Man Will Show You, in honor of Robin Gibb, who died recently, along with Donna Summer. Greg, two giants of what would become disco, two of the figures most responsible for bringing this underground dance movement into the mainstream. But what are we really talking about when we say disco? 
Some people are going to always think of Saturday Night Fever. Others will think of Studio 54 and all that glitz and the glamour. Others yet may think that the music was disposable. Disco sucks was the t-shirt. Well, disco doesn't suck. It never did. Not then and not now. In the next part of the show, we're going to offer a defense, if you will, of this music. It's so true, Jim. You know, there's this long, rich tradition of music leading up to disco, and it continues to flourish to this day, even despite attempts like that disco demolition night in 1979. That was the night between a White Sox doubleheader here in Chicago. They tried to burn all these disco records, supposedly poking fun at the genre. You know, a literal disco inferno broke out that night. But they couldn't kill the genre that night, and they can't kill it now. I want to start with the term disco itself. When did it come into vogue? It was first used, according to a number of sources, in a September 1973 article in Rolling Stone magazine, of all places, by Vince Aletti, who was yep. one of the first writers to really chronicle this genre of music. Was and an he, un- he wrote a great book that charts the history and development of disco day by day. And his, his writing really brings that music to life. Absolutely. The title of the article in Rolling Stone was uh, Discotheque Rock 72 Party. (laughs) And uh, it was a club and loft phenomenon at that stage. There weren't really discotheques as such. They were small kind of loft parties presided over by disc jockeys who were basically playing their record collections for people and figuring out new ways of getting people to dance, segueing tracks together, extending the tracks out, forming the basis for hip-hop music, which was going on in a parallel stream in New York City at the time where disc jockeys were playing these tracks, a lot of them so-called disco tracks, as uh, the platforms for MCs to rap over. So you had these two genres of music sort of working side-by-side in New York City in the early 70s. It was coming out of soul and funk in the 60s and 70s and developed a style of of its own. You you, you think about a singer like Shirley Goodman who had a huge hit in the 50s out of New Orleans when she was known as Shirley and Lee called Let the Good Times Roll. Come on, baby, while the thrill is on. Come on, baby, let's have some fun. Come on, baby, let the good time roll. Roll all night long. Come on, baby, just close the door. Come on, baby, let's rock some more. Come on, baby, let the good time roll. Roll all night long. She resurfaces in 1974 as Shirley and Company and has one of the first disco hits, Shame, Shame, Shame. So this music was coming out of the R&B that was occurring in the 50s in a lot of ways. So just listen to me. happening and what sort of turned it into a genre were a couple of things. That steady 4-4 rock beat, that syncopated bass line that you needed to get people on the dance floor and dancing, and, uh, you know, a basic meter of about 120 beats per minute. If you had those criterion met, you were considered a disco record. It was no longer just R&B and soul or funk. It was now disco. 
And you can hear the transition in that Philly soul sound of the early 70s, Philadelphia soul music, as written, produced, and arranged by Leon Gamble and Kenny Huff. Gamble and Huff, uh, two of the greatest songwriters ever in music history, the successors to that Motown legacy of the 60s. And what they did was they they put more bottom in the music. Um, Motown mixed its records very high. They they were very hot. There was a lot of high end in those Motown singles of the 60s. What Philly did was bring in a lusher orchestration and more of a bottom end on the music. And that created a platform for disco to form. You can hear it with a group like Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, one of the greatest of the Philly soul groups. Gamblin' Huff writing for them. That was Teddy Pendergrass's first group as a vocalist. And they had a version of a song called Don't Leave Me This Way that served as a bridge between the Philly soul era and the disco era. Don't Leave Me This Way, as performed by Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, was basically a soul song. A year later, a woman by the name of Thelma Houston recording for the Motown label turned it into a disco song. You hear disco starting to become a style. Uh, By the mid-70s, the style had been formed, but it hadn't ascended to mass popularity yet. It hadn't become a trend. Saturday Night Fever was still two years off. So you had this very exciting art form taking place and spreading out from New York and getting all over the country. We're going to take a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And when we return, Greg and I will continue our disco dissection. Plus, we'll review the new albums by Beach House and Killer Mike. Yeah. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis with Dancing Greg Cott. And during this episode, we've been exploring disco, perhaps the most overlooked and misunderstood genre in popular music. Two giants of the disco world died recently, Donna Summer and Robin Gibb of the Bee Gees. Greg, as we were saying earlier, the roots of this sound lay in Philly soul music. But by the mid-70s, it was beginning to be established on its own. It was still very underground, however, much like another New York music scene. The punk and disco worlds had a lot in common. A lot of the punk musicians would be the first to recognize that when you had bands like the Talking Heads and Blondie bringing disco elements into their music. Why? Because it came from the same place. This was the music of outsiders. The gay community was a hotbed for disco. As we said earlier in the show, you think about Saturday Night Fever when you hear disco. But when that movie came out in 1977, disco already was in the mainstream. And a lot of people would say it had already sold out. You have to go back to those gay clubs to find out where it really started with people like Sylvester. This guy, Sylvester James, the first drag queen superstar Mm -hmm. in, in popular culture. He was a child gospel star, moved to San Francisco, tried to make it as a soul singer, tried to make it as a rocker, actually made two rock albums. He didn't fit. He didn't fit anywhere. And it wasn't only because he wore dresses and sang in such a high voice. He was just, he just didn't fit in the culture until he discovered disco and began to strike out on his own. And, you know, you can hear the joy of someone who, who's been shunned by society and never really fit in anywhere, didn't really have an identity in a song like his real breakthrough hit, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. Mm-hmm. You know, what does he say again and again and again? I feel real. I feel real. I feel real. company initially told him, you got to butch it up. That was a quote. This is a man wearing a dress, right? This towering, statuesque, beautiful woman, except that he's a man. I was like, you you can't tell Sylvester to be anybody but (laughs) Sylvester. And I think that that was an essential joy in the early disco sound. You also hear it in in Gloria Gaynor. This woman, uh, Gloria Fowles, is born in Newark, New Jersey. She doesn't really fit in anywhere. She also came from the church. It's amazing how many gospel singers became disco superstars. Mm -hmm. I Will Survive is one of those songs we've heard a quadrillion times. So much at so many weddings and in so many elevators and in so many parties that it's become a cliche. You Mm -hmm. know, George Carlin famously tore it apart. But if you look at the message of that song about a woman who's been spurned by her lover and and possibly mistreated physically, and it's this defiant cry, I will survive. going to put me down. Mm -hmm. And that became the the rallying cry for people who didn't fit in anywhere, who didn't have money, who didn't have privilege. Contrast that to a couple years later 
when Studio 54 would not let you in the door if you didn't have the right clothing and you weren't with the right people and you weren't beautiful. Mm -hmm. That wasn't what disco was about at all. It was about everybody come together. Let's get sweaty. Let's dance together. Hopefully let's go home with another misfit like ourselves. The same message as punk in the early days. No doubt about it, Jim. The democracy of the dance floor, Latinos, gays, blacks, all the outcasts of society created the scene and they created their own superstars, people like Sylvester, people like Gloria Gaynor, who wouldn't have stood a chance in the mainstream music world were superstars in this world and, and emerged into the mainstream because of the nurturing they got in these clubs. You know, the only people who were excluded, Greg, were straight white men. And it was straight white men in the late 70s who came up with a Disco Sucks campaign. They were threatened by it. Look at that phrase itself. I mean, that's mm. homophobia personified. Yeah, I mean, it, they weren't protesting a drum machine. They were protesting, I think, a, a deeper sociological issue that they had with this movement. They were protesting a culture that threatened them. And, and therefore, there was an idea that these people can't possibly make art. And yet, somebody like Donna Summer was making concept albums in the 70s. I think she was one of the true superstars of this movement who transcended disco, was making great records uh, with Giorgio Moroder, yeah. and, and basically reinvented the sound. Because remember, a lot of these early disco records that we've been playing were forged with uh, live instrumentation, great studio bands, meticulous production, great attention to sonic detail. They were made the same way that Phil Spector made his wall of sound recordings. When you listen to something like Barry White's Love Unlimited Orchestra, Mm -hmm. he's got 50 pieces. Absolutely. There was a lot of love and a lot of attention and a lot of art lavished on on this so-called trend. But I think Summer hit the apex of it uh, with I Feel Love, that that 1977 single. You didn't think I was going to be able to do it, but I'm going to bring Brian Eno into this. Because the story <laughs> no. goes... Yes, the story, I knew you were going to do it. The story goes that in, in the middle of the night, he was making a record with David Bowie in Berlin. And Eno came running into the studio and said to Bowie, I have just heard the sound of the future. And the record he put on was I Feel Love by Donna Summer. Now, you know, Summer, again, had come from gospel found her way over to Europe where she was touring with a version of the uh, hippie musical Hair mm. <laughs> you know? and links up with this producer and songwriter Giorgio Moroda. He was actually part of a team with a guy named Peter Bellot. And they crafted this kind of lighthearted electronic backing track as a demo in 74. That was Love to Love You Baby, which really became the prototype of I Feel Love. It was the first time you had a backing track entirely constructed of electronic instruments. It was all synthesizer. It was all drum machines. Just hadn't been done before, paired with this incredible African-American gospel-trained voice. The story goes that Love to Love You, Baby, Summer actually just uh, improvised the lyrics, which are mostly kind of orgasmic moans, in the studio while lying on her back, you know, Mm. staring up at the microphone. With I Feel Love, they kicked it into even higher gear. A German band named Kraftwerk had begun to make all electronic records in the rock realm. What Moroda did was pair it with that four on the floor rhythm you were talking about as essential to disco and turn the former LaDonna Gaines loose. You listen to I Feel Love and all electronic dance music of the last 40 years comes from this track. So here it is, I Feel Love by Donna Summer, 1977 on Sound Opinions. 
I Feel Love from Donna Summer on Sound Opinions. People forget, Jim, that that track uh, was part of a concept album. I mean, yeah. everybody talks about these singles artists in disco. Okay, what about the albums they made? I mean, that was a really ambitious 1977 concept album called I Remember Yesterday, mm-hmm. and that was the future portion yeah, right, of right, the right, record. Right. And it really was the future. As your friend Brian Eno said, you know, I've just heard the future. <laughs> well, you know, and it's also very psychedelic. That song changes. When you just listened on your radio, maybe you were driving in the car, you're listening at home in the kitchen, but when you hear it in the disco setting and it's incredibly loud it is it is a mind-altering experience it yeah. is a drug no it, it is truly a fascinating track and the thing is you can put it on today and it still sounds fresh and still sounds like the future the other great auteurs of the disco era besides donna summer and giorgio Moroder, i think were bernard edwards and nile rogers collectively known as chic talk about your great disco groups. This was truly a band. Edwards and Rogers came out of the band concept. They had started a rock band in Manhattan in the early 70s and got really dastardly looks like, you know, black guys can't play in a rock band. They forged ahead into the disco era and created this concept of, you know, we're going to be a band, we're going to play out live, we're going to play disco music, but it, it doesn't really matter what we're playing because it's just good music. It defies genre classification. And I think I think they realized all of those ambitions with Good Times, their track from 1979. To my mind, it is the track that ends the disco era in a lot of ways and also opens up the future for disco to flourish in all these other art forms. You talk about your Eno-esque minimalism at its finest. You know, there's, there's just this drizzle of keyboards in it, these really taut string arrangements, you know, very clipped, fitting in with that rhythm guitar that Nile Rodgers is playing. And above all, Bernard Edwards' Baseline to end all disco bass yeah, lines, as yeah. far as I'm concerned. This bass line has been sampled countless, countless times. It is one of the classic bass lines in all of popular music from the last 50 years. And people often do not pay attention to uh, disco lyrics. It's a mistake, I think, when you talk about certain tracks like the Sylvester track or the Gloria Gaynor sure. track that you had played earlier. And I think a good example is Good Times. A lot of people are saying, oh, they're they're singing these kind of frivolous, happy lyrics. Well, disco was about uplift and happiness. But consider the time that this was coming out. People of 2009 will appreciate what was happening in 1979 because America was going through a pretty serious recession. The economics of the inner city were particularly bad. Well, New York City was about to go bankrupt. The famous headline in the New York Daily News, Ford to City, drop dead. Mm -hmm. The city of New York wanted a bailout. So to listen to this track and say, oh, happy times are here again, happy days are here again. Well, in fact, that's exactly what they were referencing. They were drawing on some of these Depression-era songs like Happy Days Are Here Again. So they were directly referencing tough economic times and the kind of music that people listened to when they were at their lowest ebb. What did they need at this particular moment? So Rogers and Edwards understood that impulse, filtered it into this song, a brilliant dance song. The three-minute disco break in the middle of the song, this is about an eight-minute track, I think is one of the most innovative pieces of music that came out of that disco era. Here it is, Sheik's Good Times on Sound Opinions.
That's Good Times by the Mighty Sheik. Absolutely correct, Greg. That, that is a great, great band. They deserve to be hailed as important artists. One of the things that people get hung up on when they look back at disco is they're not thinking about Sheik and Gloria Gaynor and Donna Summer. They're thinking about the Rolling Stones doing Miss You and Barry Manilow doing Copacabana and Anne Margaret and Kiss and Barbara Streisand and Dolly Parton, they all put out disco records. You know, it was like that was what was selling, so everybody put it on. You have to separate that from the actual artistic leaps that the music was making. No doubt about it, Jim. Edwards and Rogers were hailed as geniuses. They were adapted by a number of rock bands, uh, for better or worse. And some of them, you know, worked out really well. They, you know, they worked on David Bowie's Let's Dance, Madonna's Like a Virgin, Duran Duran's Notorious, NXS's Original Sin. These are tracks that took the disco sound into the 80s and sort of reconfigured it into rock music. But you also consider this song in particular, Good Times, was the launching pad for hip-hop. Uh, Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight mm-hmm. was based on this bass line. Curtis Blow's The Breaks was based on this song. Blondie's Rapture, one of the big new wave mm-hmm. hits, was based on this bass line. Queen's Another One Bites the Dust was that based bass on this bass line. You could go on and on and on about how this song has continued to live on. So disco, although the genre itself may be dead, the idea of dance music and this sound that we talked about in Donna Summer's I Feel Love and Sheik's Good Times continues to influence the popular music of today. Greg, let's take a quick listen to a roller skating jam named Saturdays by De La Soul, one of Sheik and Disco's greatest descendants. And we want to give you the opportunity to share your thoughts on Disco on the air. Call 888-859-1800. We'll be back with reviews of new albums by Beach House and Killer Mike in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
welcome back to Sound Opinions. You're listening to a song called Myth by the band Beach House from their new album, Bloom. Greg, this is a duo whose roots stretch back to Baltimore in 2005, comprised of Alex Scaly, the multi-instrumentalist, and vocalist Victoria Legrand, who happens to be the niece of the great French composer Michel Legrand. Really started building their indie buzz with an early independent album on Car Park Records. They put out two fine discs for that label before moving up to Sub Pop for 2010's Teen Dream. Now comes album number four. They said they really set out with this one to create a unified listening experience, a musical journey from beginning to end, although I think there were elements of that in everything they've recorded to date. Let's hear a song from this new album and then come back and give our opinions. This is Lazuli by Beach House from the album Bloom on Sound Opinions. That is Lazuli from Beach House from their fourth album, Bloom. Jim, you mentioned that they uh, started to turn the corner a little bit with their previous album, 2010, Teen Dream. That's when they started working with this producer, Chris Cody. And he did give them that epic widescreen sound I think they were looking for and didn't quite get to on their first couple of records. But the sound has basically been the same. On album number four, they're still... The, the same elements are there, that, that sort of shimmering sense of keyboards, those slide guitars kind of in the background. The drums are very muted. They're kind of in the background as well. You've got Victoria Legrand's sort of disembodied voice floating over the top. She's very deadpan. It's very beautiful, but very deadpan. And then just layers and layers of these wordless backing harmonies. So that's the sound. And you can draw arrows straight back to their reference points. You know, anybody who was around buying 4AD records in the 80s is going to recognize this sound, and they're going to love it. When you hear a song like Lazuli, you kind of want to swoon a little bit because it's such a beautiful sound. 
But I get the sense that we've been here before because we have. I don't think the songwriting has really grown up all that much. I think the sound is beautiful for what it is, but I think they're sort of staying in place. It's like they're afraid to sort of venture beyond the breakthroughs they made on Teen Dream. So I don't hear a lot of growth here. I think especially in the middle part of this record, after that initial burst of three or four songs, which are just beautiful, it really starts to sag and start a little samey sounding, like the the songwriting really hasn't caught up with the sound yet. So as much as I love the sound, I'm not sure the songs are all there on this record. So I'm going to have to give it a burn it rating. Wow, I'm surprised to hear you say that, Greg. I think of Beach House very much in terms of something that the uh, folks in Stereo Lab said to me a couple of years ago, that their music was one giant iceberg, <laughs> and they just went up to it and chipped off an ice cube at a time, right? It was mm. all the same. They just gave you little bits and pieces. You valiantly made it through your entire review without mentioning either Cocteau Twins yeah. or Nico, the original singer for the Velvet Underground. Listen, everybody, even hipsters, need, like, make-out music or chill-out music. It's not as good as the Cocteau Twins, but, you know, hey, it, it's nice <laughs> to have in the collection for those occasions when you need something a little quieter. I don't ever want to see Beach House live. You know, I've seen them a couple of times in those big outdoor festival settings. It's a dreadful experience. This <laughs> is music for headphones or to listen to on the couch with your loved one. I, I think I prefer this album, Bloom, better than Teen Dream, but it really is one sound. If you want to own one Beach House album, this is the one, and after that, just buy the Cocteau Twins box set. I guess that adds up to a half-hearted buy-it for Beach House. You are witnessing elegance in the form of a black elephant on terraces. Will I die slain like my king by a terrorist? Will my woman be Coretta, take my name and cherish it? Or will she Jackie Yo drop the Kennedy, remarry it? My sister say it's necessary on some Cleopatra. My grandmama said, nope, never that is sacrilege. Tend to agree because the thought is so disparaging. The Lord give a load, you got to carry it like Mary did. That's why I'm giving honor to all these baby mamas. It takes a woman's womb to make a Christ a Dalai Lama. The world might take the child, turn that child into a monster. The Lord take a monster and fashion them a saint. I present you Malcolm X with those saying that he can't. That is Killer Mike with a track called Untitled from his new album, Rap Music. Michael Render, a.k.a. Killer Mike, has been a protege of that outcast group out of the South, Atlanta specifically. He debuted with a cameo vocal on Outkast's 2000 album, Stanconia, one of the best albums of that year, and he's continued to pop up on various Outkast projects since then. He was in that Outkast movie and soundtrack, Idlewild. He was on Big Boy's Speaker Box album in 2003. Meanwhile, he developed his own solo career starting in 2003 with an album called Monster. It was a top 10 album, actually, and it did yield a fairly good-sized hip-hop hit in Adidas. Now, since then, he's gone indie, self-released four albums, hugely respected in the hip-hop underground, but not a lot of mainstream support. Now he's on album number six. He's teamed up with LP, a great East Coast producer and MC, to produce this particular album. It's called Rap Music. Let's play a track from it before we review it. It's the title track from Rap Music by Killer Mike on Sound Opinions. I've never really had a religious experience in a religious place. I've ever come to seeing and feeling God is listening to rap music. 
life, what I speak might save the streets. I ain't got no instruments, but I got my hands and feet. Hands on clap and feet on tap. LB beats to make that slap. And I ride them with my raps. And they all tight as my naps. And my naps is all I got. And it's beautiful, evidence skin. And the music in my heart. And the words put in the wind. And the words put in the wind. Coming back like a boomerang. When I take this microphone, pull it in the crowd, they start to sing. This is jazz, this is funk, this is soul, this is gospel, this is sanctified sex, this is play of Pentecostal, this is church. Amen, poor people, what my people need and the opposite of jazz, this is funk, this is soul, this is gospel, this is sanctified, this is play of Pentecostal, this is church. Amen, poor people, what my people need and the opposite of that Robert Johnson, that Muddy Wallace, that James Brown, Augusta Georgia, that Ray Charles, that Stevie Wonder, that Mayfield, that Superfly, that Willie Hutch, and that Mac. This that blues man, that soul man, that outcast, that Southern playalistic Cadillac. This that Jimmy Hendrix, that George Clinton, I feel it in my... Aretha Franklin, that Shirley Caesar, missing us some more. That Sade, that loves King, that Coltrane, that loves Green, that Miles Davis, brew that... Said by play one, two, this is jazz, this is funk. That is Killer Mike with the title track for his new album, his sixth, Rap Music. Greg, it's an acronym. Rebellious African People is what he means when he says R-A-P Music. Wow, what an album. This is an extraordinary disc. Again, lest I be charged with inconsistency, is this at heart essentially a gangster rap album? Yeah, there's a lot of talk about violence in the streets, there's a lot of unnecessary cussing in the unedited version, but any genre can produce art that rises above the cliches and really stands on its own. As far as I'm concerned, for music about life on the streets, in the ghetto, violent life. You have to go back to the earliest days of Ice Cube with N.W.A., Straight Outta Compton, or his initial solo albums to get music this powerful. There's also a lot more than the gangster thing happening here. There is a sense of history with Killer Mike, where he is placing hip-hop in context of all great African music, not only just funk and disco and other sounds, but going back to the black church, going back to history. You know, he name-drops Miles Davis's Bitches Brew on this record, okay? There's an all-encompassing sense of that. There's a belief in the power of music that is nothing short of inspirational. At one point, he says, the closest I've ever gotten to God, to feeling God, is listening to rap music. And there is a political astuteness. He is talking about politics in a very sophisticated way. Ronald Reagan is an extraordinary track, not only for the fact that we have a rapper with a sense of history who remembers that president, but who is making the point of we are now living in an age where every politician is an actor. Ronald Reagan was an actor, not at all a factor, just an employee of the country's real masters, just like the Bushes, Clinton, and Obama. Wow, that's a heavy thought. Forget about whether you agree with it or not. This guy is a killer talent, and on album number six, he has made a beginning-to-end brilliant record. i got to say, this is a buy-it record. Yeah, I agree with you, Jim. Killer Mike is an extremely underrated rapper, and I think he has made an absolute hip-hop classic with uh, rap music. As an MC, he can attack words from a lot of different angles. I mean, he can go with that southern twangy outcast style, and he can also go rapid-fire on a song like Go!, where I think he and LP are really celebrating just hardcore hip-hop. I mean, when was the last time you heard a scratch, a turntable scratch solo, let alone a great turntable scratch solo on a song that just got you all fired up? Like, man, this is what it was all about in, like, 1988. Not that it's a retro record, but it is definitely going back 
to the basics of solid production with a great MC over the top. It's incredibly hard to top that. In hip-hop, though many people have tried, that basic formula still works when it works best. And with Killer Mike, as you said, the range of subject matter on this record, not only his attack as an MC, but what he wants to talk about. Sure, he's doing some boasting on here, but he's also talking about, you know, the buzz he gets off reading great literature. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, when yeah. was the last time you heard a track like that? And I think the core of the album, you're absolutely right, is right at the center. There's a series of about four or five tracks in a row there where he's taking his history within the African community right up through the present day. And he's referencing the Reagan era. He's referencing the Diallo shooting in New York in 99. He's talking about those public enemy and ice cube records that influenced him so much, specifically America's Most Wanted. I think Mm -hmm. one of those classic records that sort of took that gangster thing that you're talking about and applied it with a sort of a journalistic and a political social consciousness that I think he's really bringing forward on this record in a great way. And then ending it with that title song that we played a few minutes ago where he basically talks about rap music being my savior and transforming me and allowing me to get to this place in my life. How many artists, Jim, can you name that have made their best album on their sixth album? I mean, here's a guy who has really grown, let alone a hip-hop artist. Yeah. I can't think of one right off the top of my head, but I think he's made a masterpiece. Album number six from Killer Mike is a masterpiece, rap music, and it's a buy it all the way. So two very enthusiastic buy-its for Killer Mike. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit from the Screaming Females. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn with the able assistance of Annie Minoff and Michael DeBonis. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. He never stopped wearing leisure suits or Kiana shirts. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Joe from Chicago. I just wanted to give you a call and compliment you on the Mother's Day show. Two particular songs that I really wanted to comment on, The Smashing Pumpkins or Martha. It seems like I've been one of the only people that's championed that album, Adore, as one of their best. And also for Greg, for this woman's work, Very interesting to listen to the recent remake of it on Director's Cut from Kate Bush. The perspective is both from a mom, somebody who's had kids, and somebody who's lost her mom. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Matt. I'm calling from uh, Paris, France, where I download your podcast every week, calling in with my idea for a Mother's Day song. I'm going to suggest 
Maggot Brain by Funkadelic, uh, which doesn't have a whole lot of lyrics. And even though it does start off talking about Mother Earth, I'm sure a lot of your listeners know that that incredible expressive solo played by Eddie Hazel was something he laid down after George Clinton told him to imagine his mother had died or someone had told him his mother had died. So can't find too much more expressive music than that. While I'm on the phone with you anyway, let me just say that uh, I was glad to hear the Liz Fair suggestion. A lot of her lyrics are about motherhood, but uh, you guys got to get off her case a little bit. You guys sound like critics when you talk about her, not, not like fans, and uh, I don't mean that as a compliment. Okay, take care, guys. Thanks for the show. guys. My name is Andrew, and I'm from Arlington, Virginia. just calling to uh, thank Greg for turning me on to the music of Nick Waterhouse. I mentioned him in the South by Southwest recap episode. He came to uh, Washington, D.C. this past week and played in what was pretty much the equivalent of someone's basement, so a tiny crowd, about 50 people or less. Everything you said about him was true and more. I mean, he was just incredible. He is a Backup singers, two saxophone players, drummer, keyboardist, using Fred one all. drawback of Nick was uh, the fact that he was wearing a short sleeve dress shirt and it kind of reminded me of Dwight Schrute. Other than that, it was a great show. Keep up the good work and uh, I'll talk to you later. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.